This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast, the only show where we review and read books so that I guess you don't have to, but hopefully actually so that you're encouraged to go read them. And we've had a few detours on the show of late. We've gotten away from some of the hardcore economics and political philosophy, which we usually cover. Last week, we really enjoyed going through Mark Spitznagel's incredible new book, Safe Haven. So I hope you benefited from that. And people who have been listening along will recall that two weeks ago, we took a really big diversion and we did our first ever novel on the show. All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark, which, of course, is a really seminal and lasting anti-war book. So I thought all that said, since we are about to delve into two pretty heavy-duty volumes of Rothbard's History of Economic Thought, which he was unfortunately not able to complete quite before his death, uh, as we're sort of gearing up for that with a variety of guests, I thought we'd, we'd take another week to do another novel. And so uh, this week's book is Lucky Jim. Uh, by the great Kingsley Amos, the British satirist. And I thought there would be nobody better for the task than our great friend Alan Mendenhall, who's in studio with us. Uh, many of you know Alan as a contributor to Mises.org. He's also now an associate dean down at the business school at nearby Troy University here in Alabama. Before that, he was an associate dean of the Faulkner Law School in Montgomery. But his own background, like mine, is actually in English and literature, Alan, I'm going to throw this out there. Uh, when I was a young man thinking about becoming an English professor, I loved 20th century British satire. I loved E.M. Forster and Evelyn Waugh. I loved Graham Greene. Uh, I loved Kingsley Amos. And so way back in the late 80s, early 90s is, is how and why, I suppose, I came to read today's book, Lucky Jim. Well, it's a great book. It's a funny book. I read it in 2018 for the first time in Norway, of all things, just on bus rides and in transit and really, really enjoyed it. Um, this story is told by a third-person narrator who seems to share Jim Dixon's derisive perspective and attitude. So Jim Dixon is the protagonist of the book. He's the quintessential anti-hero who disdains snobbishness and bumbles his way from misadventure to misadventure drinking and smoking and, alas, winning over the girl whom he believed to be out of his league. It is a uh, a great, entertaining book. It is, uh, you know, it sort of comes out of this anti-modernist vein. In the, in the uh, early 20th century, uh, you had modernism as a rebellion against the Victorian styles and attitudes and conservatism. You know, Queen Victoria died in 1901. And, uh, you know, just... During this Victorian era, and slightly slightly beyond that, if you think about sort of the four figures who above anybody else changed the course of human thinking, I'm thinking Darwin, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. So everything is is fundamentally changing in the way people are thinking in the West. And then uh, these modernists are sort of supplanting the literary output of people like Hardy and Henry James and Joseph Conrad and Rudyard Kipling. And... Uh, then you have these modernists like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and Vir Virginia Woolf and uh, Joyce in Ireland, Faulkner in the United States. And Kingsley Amos is reacting negatively against them. He sees them as uh, sort of part of the uh, upper class, uh, upper echelon taste. And he, uh, you can see that his portrayal of both Bertrand and, and 
Welch, Professor Welch in this novel uh, as uh, as sort of a derisive attacks on on those people. He's considered he being Kingsley Amos is considered one of the uh, the angry young men who are rebelling against British establishment. I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, momentarily. But uh, as the establishment changed from conservative in the 40s and 50s to sort of progressive of leftists, uh, Kingsley Amos remained anti-establishment and sort of became a conservative figure. You mentioned the 40s and 50s. Part of the, the angry young man element of this book is that it, it takes place roughly in 1951. No date is mentioned, but it's, uh, you know, there's still a labor government, which suggests it's it's 51 in England. And uh, and its protagonist, Jim, has actually been off to war. And like a lot of other young men, like, although he spent the entire war like in the RAF in Scotland somewhere, not in any danger, uh, which we'll see is, is a part and parcel of his character, avoiding danger at all costs. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, there's this feeling in in England at the time that the old class system is over because, after all, we had two world wars, right? And, and this book shows that it, it isn't over and that there's a lot of puncturing to be done of egos. And so when I was thinking to myself, geez, how am I going to sell a, a, a novel on the Human Action Podcast? I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front's an anti-war book. Right. And a lot of people actually provide some great feedback on that. And I thought, you know, this is sort of, you know, just a book I really like and, and you know, what benefit is it to the audience? And so, I mean, first and foremost, I would say if you've been in and around academia, this is a campus novel. Right. It is and, a campus and, novel. And British satire loves a campus setting. Um, you know, and there's really a lot of parallels here. This book came out in 54. But in 1928, Evelyn Waugh's also first novel was Decline and Fall. And that is a book that's near and dear to my heart and that takes place in an English boarding school. So it's, a you know, at the... At the uh, at the boarding school level rather than the university level. But, uh, you know, so much that we see here about the pretensions of academia, about the doddering old professor, uh, about the, the, you know, the climb for little petty differences in status, um, titles, and, you know, any, anybody who's in our circles, especially in economics, is going to relate to Jim trying to get published and, um, and trying to get a job at his university via publication. Yeah, and I I, I have a, a little bit to say about that and about, about Jim Dixon. So he moves from passive to active, weak to strong. At the beginning, he's this helpless passenger in Welch's car, but he gradually finds agency until at the end, he outwits the the Welches and his opponents, and succeeds in his pursuit of Christine. And, and just to be clear, Welch is, is the is the tenured professor like who holds his power over, basically like the department chair. He's not like the he's not like the there's the principal who's sort of like the president, but Welch is like the department chair. Um, but both Jim and the novel itself represent upstart, uncultivated, middle-class culture as against the stuffy, highbrow, and pedantic society of. Um, sort of the arrogant, uh, humorless establishment at Oxford and Cambridge, say. So Jim's not what you'd call a gentleman. He lacks manners and tastes. He curses and can't read music. He's always making faces for which he has names. He talks about his Eskimo face, his Martian invader face, his Chinese Mandarin face, his lemon-sucking face, and on and on and on. There's actually a BBC doctor, documentary from, I think, the early 90s, and uh, it's a profile of, of Kingsley Amos. And the uh, interviewer asks him to make one of these faces, and it is hilarious. I wish I wish I could like 
replicate the face for you here. We could have a video of it, but it is really funny to see him make one of these faces. But at any rate, Jim feels the need to match his countenance with his internal emotions. You know, he's unremarkable in appearance. He's got poor etiquette, but he has a keen eye for social and class distinctions and really has it in for the more refined characters whom he associates with hypocrisy and affectation and silliness and pretension. So people like the Welches and, and Bertrand. Um, Jim goes to the Welch's party. So the plot sort of divides into three big scenes. There's, there's the arty weekend at the Welch's house. There's the summer ball. And then there's the Mary England lecture. And then there's kind of a conclusion. And each portion of the book is building up to those particular scenes. But at the, the arty weekend, Jim leaves the Welch's party, which is full of pretense and airs and ridiculous singing and no alcohol, by the way, for the more rustic and vulgar pub. He sneaks out where he proceeds to basically get hammered. He realizes he doesn't belong in the party. His absence is scarcely noted, and that's noticed. And that's when he comes back and um, makes a pass at Margaret and passes out in the bed and burns the bed sheets. And there's this just hilarious attempt to cover it up with the character Christine um, so Jim's so, so drunk that his his still lit cigarette causes the bed sheets. Yeah, to burn. causes the and it's so funny. He sees the sheets and he he's like, "What do I do with this?" So he gets out scissors and tries to cut holes around so you can't see the stain. I mean, it is hilarious the predicament he's in. It's like a little bit of a Mister Bean episode uh, where he's stuck in this situation and trying to get out and he can't get out. Uh, there are actually a few different predicaments like that that happen throughout the novel, and each time Christine sort of helps him get through it. But uh, what's interesting about Jim, uh, among other things, is that, you know, he he's sort of an avatar of Amos himself. Critics have constantly linked Jim Dixon with Kingsley Amos. And Amos was such a performer that the British public began to associate him with Jim. Uh, but like, like Jim, Amos was associated with working class culture, was out of place in aristocratic and el elitist milieu of Oxford, where he got his bachelor's. Um, also, like Jim, Amos taught at a university, the University of Swansea in, uh, in Wales. Uh, but years after publication of Lucky Jim, he grew just enchanted with it. Um, Dixon serves in the RAF, but never see, sees any combat there. Amos also uh, served in the military before embarking on his career. So there are a lot of similarities. And even as he grew older and got more conservative, I think it was 1967, and I believe it's in National Review, that uh, Kingsley Amos wrote an essay called you know why Lucky Jim turned right, and and it and he basically adopts the persona of Lucky Jim. So he he was very um, charismatic and uh, deliberate about adopting this Lucky Jim persona, and uh, I think it 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 served him well with the British public. Well, there's this idea, of course, in the 40s or 50s, for example, that a professor at a in the English university would be a socialist. And so uh, Amos paints Jim that way. But you mentioned that he, he later wrote this article, Why Jim Turned Right. And of course, Amos himself was a member of the Communist Party when he was a young guy at Oxford. Uh, I, I like your comment about um, Jim chafing at the sort of bourgeois pretensions of academic life. And there's this great scene where he's out at the pub and he likes pop music to Mozart, and he likes pubs to drawing rooms and this and that. And so the uh, the uh, the barmaid is fetching him a drink, and he notices that she's uh, not particularly attractive, which is very Amos-like. But then he says, you know, it, but if she knew me, she, I, I, but he really likes her because she's from the same class as him. And he says, if she knew me, she wouldn't see me as this university 
you know, bloke, but rather somebody that there's a, a beauty here in, in her uh, plainness, we might say. And so I thought that was a nice touch by Amos. Yeah, I think so, too. In a big contrast with, say, Professor Welch, he's a caricature of the snobbish and aloof old professor type. He professes to love art and music, but is ridiculous in his manifestation of that love. Um, his taste for music is classical in the vein of Brahms and Mozart. Um, he assigns Jim to give this Mary England lecture. And of course, Mary England is this idealized pastoral England that downplays the violent history of the different monarchs and emphasizes a romanticized version of nature and of literary culture before the Industrial uh, Revolution. Um, so that barmaid is is in direct contradistinction to uh, Professor Welch, who sort of condescends to inferiors and forces Jim to edit and do all this research for him, and uh, whose wife is uh, a Francophile who loves this sort of French high culture. And again, I, I go back to, to Amos himself. When Amos entered Oxford, as you, as you suggested, one of the first things he did was join the, the Communist Party, something that he regretted later or at least disassociated from later. Um, he met Philip Larkin, the poet, and this book is actually dedicated to Philip Larkin. And Larkin helped Amos develop some of the characters in the novel based on real people that they knew. Um, Amos became prominent in the 50s as one of the so-called angry young men, as we mentioned earlier. Another one of those is a guy named John Brain. And there is a an old firing line episode with William F. Buckley with both Brain and Amos talking about their turn to the right and why they have rejected sort of their more socialist views from when they were young. But uh, but these angry young men railed against the establishment status quo for ossifying barriers to entry into high society and well-paying jobs um, with prestige and social status. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to compare that young Amos with the older Amos who eventually gets knighted. He becomes, you know, Sir Kingsley. Um, but, you know, he wasn't highborn. So he identified with someone like Margaret Thatcher, who was, you know, the daughter of a grocery worker. And rose up through the social hierarchy through hard work and intellectual merit. Amos was a uh, first-generation college student. He quit driving after the 1940s, after he left the British Army. Um, although he rose to prominence as a young rebel, by the end of his life, he became a, a figure in a picture of old England. He had sort of had that sartorial conservatism, wearing vests and tweed jackets and a crusty demeanor, and he was adamantly politically incorrect. And uh, that was among an increasingly multicultural British intelligentsia that looked elsewhere to other countries for identity rather than at home. Uh, it, he, he became so unpopular among the left that uh, that one uh, left-wing journalist has accused Martin Amos, his son, of of growing up with privilege, being a snob that grew up with privilege. And, uh, and another, another um, left-wing author who wrote an obituary said that... Uh, Kingsley Amos was a reactionary who shouldn't we shouldn't read Kingsley Amos. He's 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 too inappropriate. He's too he's too out of bounds. He needs to be forgotten and purged from the canon. So, uh, you know, Amos is a a complex figure. He uh, you know his 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 marital life was always strange. You know, he was a philanderer in his first marriage, but then again, so was his wife. Uh, by the end of his life, he ends up moving back in with his first wife and her husband and living with them because he just couldn't stand to be alone. He loved to drink. He loved to socialize. He loved conversation and he loved people. And he just couldn't 
he couldn't stand being alone and his kids did not want to babysit dad, so to speak. So he ended up back living with his first wife and, and her and her husband. So strange, strange arrangement. He never quite made it in America in the way that Evelyn Waugh did. And I think that's Evelyn Waugh's a generation older, for one. And I think, I, I believe it was PBS, which ultimately uh, aired the Brideshead Revisited series as a series here in the U.S., which probably did a lot more to to generate interest in Waugh's novels. And also, you know, as an English major, I was assigned a lot more Waugh and not much Amos, if I recall, in my in my British classes. So that's that's interesting. Speaking of academia and Jim, he you know, part of whether he's going to keep his job, of course, depends on Professor Welsh, whom you've mentioned. And it also depends on whether he can get his uh, paper published. So first of all, the title's hilarious. I think people are gonna are gonna laugh. I mean, this is so perfect. It's called "The Impact of Economic Factors on the Development of Shipbuilding Skills, 1450 to 1485." So that's that hits pretty close to home. We wouldn't want to go all the way to 1495 or whatever with that analysis. So this, you know, it's this hopeless paper, and and that I think any academic will identify with uh, his process of getting it turned down by a prominent journal and then and then uh, his professor telling him to try a less prominent new journal. I think that'll, a lot of academics, that'll hit close to home. But what, what I love is where he, he realizes, first of all, he's not well-read. He's not particularly intelligent. He's not really cut out for academic life. And his paper is not particularly good. He's not even interested in medievalism. And that's what he's there to teach. Could care less. But he says, he says, so he's reading from the introduction to his own paper. He says, in considering this strangely neglected topic, it began. And then he asks himself this, what neglected topic? This strangely what topic? This strangely neglected what? So he says, uh, his thinking all this without him having defiled and set fire to the transcript only made him appear to himself as more of a hypocrite and fool. So I think, I think this, this really touches a nerve in academia. We, we wonder this is, you know, is, is academia, is a particular discipline doing any good? Is it actually serving anyone? And I think that the practitioners themselves are probably asking themselves that sometimes when they're publishing these, these, uh, you know, really uh, arcane papers. Yeah. And it's interesting that the, uh, the uh, professor who is the journal editor ends up plagiarizing his essay and publishing it in Italian <laughs> before uh, before leaving for a post in, in Argentina of all places and, and leaving Jim without a uh, without a publication to his credit. And of course, it, by the time that happens, Jim's Jim's uh, deal at the university is 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 all over after his Mary England speech goes sour. Um, you mentioned uh, Amos's popularity or lack of it in in the United States. I, I think that is sort of interesting. Is you know you you mentioned Evelyn Waugh, and we had a Brideshead television program here. Waugh was about twenty years older, and um, Kingsley Amos actually suggested that uh, P.J. Uh, Woodhouse and Evelyn Waugh were were influences on him. Uh, but one interesting thing to me, this is one of the most interesting facts about Amos, is that. You know, he wrote the first James Bond novel after Ian Fleming's death. So in 1968, he writes Colonel Sun and writes it under a pseudonym, Robert Markham. So that's the first James Bond novel after after Ian Fleming passes away. And he had actually written a book on uh, James Bond, like a like a book of criticism called the James Bond Dossier a few years earlier, like the year after uh, Fleming's death is when that came out. Um, you know, I think it I, I think this book, Lucky Jim, 
really established Kingsley Amos's reputation in, in England and made him a household name there. And in a way that maybe, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it wouldn't a- a- appeal to an American audiences. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, but this book sold a lot of copies in paperback in, in the United States and made him a lot of money. So he did, you know, he did have some, uh, some good success with, with, with sales on this side of the pond. I'm struck by how Amos uses names to skewer people. And it reminded me a lot of Dickens. Dickens has some names which are highly descriptive of his characters, and they're just so good. I mean, Dickens was so adept yeah. at coming up with these names, which not only described them, but deflated them utterly. So there's this name like Julius Gore Eckhart. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you just, you know, who's a Scott, a mysterious Scottish uncle. And, um, you know, you just wonder what kind of skill it takes to be a satirist. And, and in a sense, I mean, is it a tired genre? It's, it almost feels like in 2021, the U.S., there's nothing left to satirize. Everyone said each other's throats. Yeah, I, well, I wish we would have some more satire. People don't have the, uh, I don't think they have the nuance for satire anymore. People can't capture it. I mean, if you had, uh, you know, somebody writing about, you know, killing all the Irish babies and eating them for food, we're talking about Jonathan Swift here, um, people wouldn't catch it. They would, their people are, take things a little bit too seriously. We need sort of that biting juvenile and satire in our culture. I think, uh, the, the character that most is the target of, of that in the, in the book is that is the Bertrand figure. Who's the, mm-hmm. who's, um, the painter, the, but Welch's, Welch's son, he, Professor Welch's son, Professor Welch's son. Yeah. He's, he's sort of ridiculous. He's this painter and a path pacifist with a long beard, who wears a yellow sport coat and a beret. Um, he calls Jim a lousy little Philistine, a dirty little barfly, a nasty little jumped up turd. <laughs> but he speaks, uh, you know, he speaks with these manufactured inflections that make him seem ridiculous. Like he pronounces C as Sam, S-A-M, like as in Usam, <laughs> or me as mom, like mom. And it's just, it's just totally ridiculous because no one, no one, talks like that. And he aspires to be this renowned artist. But Christine, his girlfriend, has never seen any of his pictures. And uh, her role in his life seems to be not so curiously related to Urka Hart, the wealthy patron of the arts who's probably in his 40s and who at the end says that Bertrand's painting is is bad. And he ends up hiring Jim. And that's part of the the, the wonderful conclusion and why Jim is so lucky is he ends up not just with Bertrand's girl, but with his dream job as well. And I think there's sort of a, 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 a niceness about the way this ends happily. I mean, you know, this, this, this book is considered just satire, railing against the establishment. He's part of the angry young man, but it's a happy ending. You know, it, it turns out well for, for that's Jim. That's why he's lucky. Yeah, that's why he's lucky. And, and there's something nice about that because all indicators throughout the novel are that things are not going to turn out well for him. And yet they do. And I think that's part of what makes uh, this novel so charming is its unexpected resolution. Well, I'll ask you, and I'll also ask the audience, do you make time or have time to read fiction? Have you given up on novels? And if so, what does that mean for us? Aren't we poorer as a result? I definitely think our culture is poorer as a result. I think that the uh, the novel, you know, there are a lot of people speculate about the death of the novel or the end of the novel. The novel hasn't been around as a 
popular genre for all that long. You know, it was a serialized form and it sort of uh, uh, supplanted poetry and the popular taste. And when it first came out, it was the lowbrow thing. It was like, oh, well, are we watching television? What we might say about watching television now. So, um, but, you know, obviously reading novels requires a lot more rigor than just a purely visual medium like film or television. Uh, and I, I do think we we have lost a literary culture uh, in in our country, but part of that is because we've sort of fractured into so many different cultures that it may just be we have so many small literary cultures in competition with each other that we don't even recognize that there that there is a literary culture because it's so specific to particular communities that or. Uh, the the books that sort of make it to the New York Times bestseller list are overly politicized or they're chosen for the author's identity and not based on sort of the four corners of the text, so to speak, the actual merit of the work. I don't know. These are just speculations on my behalf, but I do think we uh, we lose a lot by um, neglecting our literary culture. And I say that as, as, as somebody who loves economics, too. I feel that you know, to be a well-rounded person and um, to really understand the sweep of history, you have to have uh, sort of literary knowledge in addition to philosophical and historical knowledge. But, you know, being a, a literate person is, a, is much more than just learning what policy position I should take and like which person I should vote for up in D.C. and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a much broader and uh, long-term project. You know, to become a literate person is, is, a, is a lifetime effort. It requires constant reading. Well, and it goes to this larger question of whether a liberal arts education is still worth it or meaningful. I mean, I, I can speak for myself. I'm not sure that I would ever have read Beowulf uh, had it not been assigned to me and had I not had a grade at the end of the semester and had I not had my parents breathing down my neck to get good grades and, and this and that. I mean, it, you know, it's awfully hard as an adult. If, for, for, you know, we talk about, the, you know, anybody now can access anything on the Internet. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But the best time to access anything is when you're young, because your brain is firing uh, on all pistons when you're young. But beyond that, that's when you maybe have the time. You know, you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a super demanding career. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I think that we're a little blithe about how we go about dismissing uh, a uh, so-called liberal arts education. You know, when you look at Rothbard and, and his unbelievable sweep of history, which absolutely uh, benefited him as an economist. I think the the literature side of things is maybe the one area where Rothbard was not as uh, complete. Uh, Henry Hazlitt yeah. has a fiction novel. That's right. Actually, little known amongst his uh, uh, amongst his least known works. Maybe we'll read that and uh, consider on the show sometime. But uh, you know, beyond that. You know what is to to understand economics without history, to understand economics without uh, uh, sociology, to understand economics without all the other related disciplines. I think is a pretty new phenomenon. The idea that it's a standalone discipline, and I think, I think what we ought to be doing is is uh, being more interdisciplinary. I totally agree. I mean, economics as a discipline didn't just spring out of a vacuum. I mean, you've got the School of Salamanca, you've got the Scottish Enlightenment, you've got all kinds of precursors. And I, I think every econ department should teach a course in economic history just to contextualize what the heck we're doing here instead of going straight to all this mathematical modeling and taking calculus and all this kind of stuff. You should have a, a, a sort of a, a more definite context 
for the emergence of that discipline. And I think that would make everything you're doing at the micro level make a lot, a lot more sense. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you will allow me this indulgence this week because I am a big, big fan of British satire, and I just wanted to sneak in one of my all-time favorite novels and encourage you to read it. It's Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos. Uh, It's already a favorite of Alan's, and he just uh, happened upon it, I guess, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of book that you're going to enjoy and maybe take you away from some of the grind of the social media and all this stuff that's coming into your head every day about COVID and about Afghanistan. You know, give yourself that uh, mental health break. And so we're going to get back to all kinds of uh, core economics in, the, in this fall and as we head into the new year. But I thought it'd be fun to take a break. And all that said, I want to thank Alan Mendenhall for his time today and hope that you all have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.